Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. All right, welcome to the Bill Press Show this Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky here filling in for the great Bill Press. Joined by the wonderful Bill Press team, Peter Ogburn. Wow. Good so, morning. So many accolades. My pride morning. and joy, Peter Ogburn. Hi, Igor. <laughs> Hi, how are you? It's Good nice to, to be see here. You. I haven't been here in a while. No, I haven't seen you in the longest time. Well, but you know, the crazy news of today really compelled me to come in because I saw that Rose Garden speech and I said, Boy, howdy. Yeah, that's what, what I said. What speech that was. At, well, it's a conference, press conference. Conference, sure. Press conference. Uh, and I said, We really got to digest this because this guy, this president, has the powers of projection I've never seen before. <laughs> it's amazing. Like things he knows he is bad at or he has not accomplished, he blames somebody else yeah. with the with it with a knee jerk reaction I've never actually witnessed in another human being. It's it, really it blows remarkable. me away. It is it's remarkable. Really remarkable. And, and and that is Trump's greatest skill. It really is his is greatest deflecting. skill. If we had to pick one thing Trump is really good at, deflecting blame is definitely the very top of that There's list. another slogan Hillary could have used, deflecting Donald. Deflecting, oh. <laughs> if only. Well, there we go. He's not good at making deals. He's not good at running a business. He's not good at building buildings with American products, as we know. I mean, I can see it now. The art of the deflection. The art of the Donald deflection. Trump. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's going to be the name of today's podcast. That's right. Well, go. Look at that. We'll get into all of that and his uh, crazy, not only remarks, but also the policies he talked about on today's show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Now, I am not a very smart man, but I can tell you this. Don't make Harvey Weinstein jokes. There are people who think that this is okay to do. James Corden. Uh, the host of that that late late show, he late took over. so late. It's it's so late. They had to say it twice. Well, he gave <laughs> a speech. He gave a speech <laughs> last week where he told the joke. I'm not going to repeat the joke because it's just sort of dumb. Where he made a joke about Harvey Weinstein. There were groans in the crowd, and so he had to come out and issue an apology. Uh, also, Al Michaels, veteran football <laughs> announcer on Sunday Night Football, the game between the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos. Joked again about Harvey Weinstein. Oh. 
You know, I, for like many people, confused Harvey Weinstein with Harvey Feinstein for like a little bit during this story. And I Harvey Firestein? Fire, no, Firestein. Yeah, Firestein. Fire, the actor. Firestein the actor. and Feinstein. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was no. very confused, as you Harvey can imagine. Harvey Weinstein. Very confused. Uh, again, like Al Michaels made a joke and had to apologize immediately later in the broadcast. Just, it's just not funny. Don't do that. James That's Corden, by the way, uh, hot take. He's bad. Very bad. He also gave a huge smooch to Sean Spicer Sean after Spicer. the Emmys. So. Yeah. But that carpool karaoke, though, was very successful. No, for it's him. not funny. There's nothing funny. But it does really. well. It does it's well. It's not interesting. Is what I'm so no, what? I don't know. I've never really seen so it. So it never does seen well. It. Apparently, okay. it takes like six hours to film. Too. I know. And it the was, Foo Fighters hated it. They, they did it uh, a couple weeks ago. There was a great interview with the Foo Fighters. It's like a three minute at most bit. And the Foo Fighters came out and said it took them six hours to film. What a nightmare. Can and you imagine doing funny. karaoke for six hours it's sober? It's not interesting. What are you, what are you okay, doing? I did not know that I was supposed to hate James Corden here. I don't. I no, no, no that's strong the memo. opinions. All right. Uh, Igor, when was the last time you ate at an Arby's? Oh, oh um, I ate once. It was in Indiana. I ate once. Go ahead. It was, Jamie, when was the last time you ate at Arby's? It's been about two years, but I'll, I'll go back to Arby's, depending what story. I, I, I have to tell you now. something. I, I ate at Arby's like... Three months ago on a road trip, just because yeah. it was the only option. But Uh-oh. here's the thing: Arby's, they've been testing their venison sandwiches, <laughs> which hardest of passes, frankly. I am not going to eat meat of indeterminate origin from Arby's. It would well, do well in the Great Northern Maine woods, but well, it did so well. They rolled it out to a lot of their stores, and it did so well that they are now testing. Elk. <laughs> elk. Sandwiches. Oh, my. So elk sandwiches at Arby's. Well, this I is going to be no the holiday, the Bill Press holiday dinner, right, at Arby's. It's a no This year. This year. <laughs> Shout right. out Arby's for pioneering game meat. Game. Fast food. Fast food, game meat. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. <laughs> Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press on this Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. I just decided I'll start that intro by saying my name. Yes. In case, you know, you're like, Where's... I've forgotten who you are. Like, well, a lot of people do. I mean, it's a memorable name, Igor. By the way, I had, I gotta say, Go yesterday, ahead. I met with the Senate staffer. Uh, I just like to say hi because uh, we, we worked together recently on something. And I thought him and I had never met before, but it turns out we had kind of worked extensively together in 2008 and 2009. And I had no memory of him, mostly because he's a very common name, like very, very common name. And I realized that one of my like goals in life has to be to not do that anymore. Because as you know, I'm like very bad at names, very bad at faces. And oh, so he knew literally everything about me. He like knew what I did in 2008, 2009, 2010, up till now. And I was just like, hi, I'm Igor. And it, it just did not. He was very gracious about it. That's but a I very felt DC great, thing great embarrassment. Happen, that happens a lot in DC. Yeah, but I feel like for a lot of people in all walks of life, you run into somebody, you for you know you, and if you are bad at like placing a name with a face in a time and place, you 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 feel very uncomfortable. You know what I learned? The one thing I learned from living in Washington D.C. all these years is any time that you meet somebody, you say, "Oh, it's nice to see you." Well, there's only not. S- it's nice to meet you. Yeah, it, this is because I had you know, it happened one too many times. I'm not tip. great with remembering. What people about either. it's nice to make your acquaintance? 
that's a lot of effort. That's just, there's just also too. there's also sort of an insinuation that you've never met before. Yeah. Well, maybe so it's this, nice to see so you. this is why it's I nice to see you. This is why I opened with my name. Just yeah, so I had a, I had know. a thing like that this weekend, and I went up to the person I, I met them years ago, and I just instead of saying what I thought their name was, I said I, it's Jamie, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I like got their it. name. Nailed it. I like it. So <laughs> nailed it. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, by the way, if you're watching Bill Press, you're probably do, doing so on YouTube at youtube.com backslash the Bill Press show. Yep. Go ahead and subscribe there uh, for not just uh, shows like this that are live, but also little clips of shows, special content on Twitter at BP show. And by the way, if you're not a Patreon uh, patron of the Bill Press show, go ahead and sign up. I think they have all kinds of exclusive content there. None of it, none of which features me for some reason. I, I don't. No, think. I have to tell you something. Patreon.com/backslash BP Show. Probably later this week. It depends on Mr. Press, uh, but probably later this week, uh, we'll be releasing episode one of our exclusive podcast, which you can only get on Patreon: The Making of Bernie Sanders. The Making of Bernie Sanders. And we we talked. Isn't to- like the people. That made him. Is well, the- yeah, but you know, you know, I mean, for those of you that, that aren't, alert. That, that don't listen to the show all the time, the the campaign for president was launched in Bill Press's living room. Oh yeah, I remember him, Bill, telling yeah, you this and like he, swearing me to secrecy. He had well, yeah. it's not such a secret. Not anymore. anymore. People know that now. Uh, he had uh, the first meeting with some of Bernie's advisors and Bernie and Jane Sanders. They were all over at Bill's house. Bill's wife Carol cooked. Uh, uh, Beef bourguignon. Oh, for everyone. Oh, and so we talked to Tad Devine. We talked to Michael Briggs, who's the chief of staff for Bernie Sanders for a long, long time. Uh, we talked to Nina Turner. Uh, we had them all in studio, and we got their takes on sort of how Bernie became Bernie. Oh, that we know now because like we've known Bernie Sanders for a long, long time as a as a you know progressive show, and we've talked to him many times. The making, gonna... the making of Bernie Sanders. So if you could only get it if you go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com. Well, maybe I can get like a special pass or something. No. Because I like, you know, no, you guest must... the show sometimes and, you know. You must know. join. Uh, by the way, also uh, go ahead and uh, subscribe to the B- BP show podcast on iTunes rate review. I also host a podcast called Thinking Cap. Listen to that. Subscribe, rate, review that as well. Yeah. Um, we had uh, just this past week, uh, Chris Murphy. Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, talking about the Iran deal. The week before that, Hillary Clinton. In what I thought, Peter, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it, was like a very kind of like unguarded and passionate interview that that Hillary gave that I thought was actually quite different from a lot of the media that she's done uh, around the book. Uh, she came over to the Center for American Progress, where I work during the day, uh, and I think really kind of felt very comfortable there uh, and and opened up uh, in ways I hadn't heard before. So uh, Thinking Cap, that's on uh, iTunes and, of course, anywhere you get your podcast. But let's get started now with the news of, uh, of, of the morning, which really stems from the crazy press conference of yesterday where the Trump administration sent, oh my God is right, a hasty release to reporters saying press availability in the Rose Garden, press availability in the Rose Garden, and they all kind of like crowded there, and reporters, as they were waiting for the president, who was having dinner with Senate Majority, or not dinner, lunch rather, with Senate Majority 
leader Mitch McConnell, they started tweeting out pictures of like, I, we, this is so strange. We're just here. We're like cattle um, behind the rope here. And um, we're not going to be able to hear each other's questions. It's going to be kind of crazy. And McConnell and uh, Trump came out and it was indeed crazy, mostly because no one has ever had to no president has had to hold a press conference like this where they're meeting with the Senate leader of their own party. And the subject of the press conference is to talk about how well they work together. Uh, not only is that blatantly untrue, um, but it's also quite desperate. Here is uh, Donald Trump talking about how he's just. Uh, in love, basically, with, uh, the, with the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, the senator from Kentucky. My relationship with this gentleman is outstanding, Mwah. has been outstanding. Uh, outstanding relationship. You'll I remember just weeks ago, just weeks ago, Trump was tweeting about what a failure McConnell has been, that he's talked about repeal and replace of Obamacare for seven years, and he hasn't done it. Uh, but Trump says, you know, he hasn't done it, but he will do it. He'll get health care done, Trump says. This man is going to get it done. Mm -hmm. Okay, And I think get it done long before anybody else. Oh. And I think it's going to be a great health I mean, health who care. else could do it? <laughs> who else could do it? Wait, it's going to be a what now? Hold on. Or anybody else, and I think it's going to be a great health care. A great health care. A great health care. A great health care. That's the name of the new plan, a great health care. A great health care. And McConnell, you know, you got to feel a little bad for this guy. He's been in politics for such a long time. He has no, a... No, by the way. No, I don't feel bad for Mitch McConnell at all. No? No. So some of you might feel a little bad for Mitch McConnell. He's been in politics for such a long time, has right. a long storied career. Uh, and a lot of people in D.C., I mean, maybe these latest months aren't the greatest example of this, but have thought of Mitch McConnell as a great deal maker uh, and somebody who could push through legislation. Not an easy thing to do. Um, but McConnell, uh, too, here, uh, telling the lie uh, about how him and the president are really just BFFs. We have the same agenda. Same agenda. Uh, we've been friends and acquaintances for a long oh, time. Such a long time. We talk uh, frequently. We don't give you a readout every they time text. we They're have a, a conversation. Text. But frequently we talk on the weekends about the issues that are before us. Yeah. How does it feel to have a gun pointed at the side of your head while you're giving a press conference? That's what it sounds like. I have to say, I had such a good time watching this. I didn't get to watch it real time. I had to watch it later. You're a busy man. But it's, it's not that. <laughs> but... Uh, when I did watch it, you know, it was basically the Trump show, you know, when he started taking questions. And it went on forever. 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 And the whole time, Bitch McConnell had to sit there next to him and not say anything. So he just had to stand up there like a puppet. Like a puppet, exactly. And had nothing to say and just look on as Trump acted like an absolute lunatic who's losing his mind, which he is. And then McConnell adds, and this is the, the piece of it that, again, is so bizarre that you wouldn't think that a Republican majority leader and a Republican president would actually have to say these words about how they're together on an agenda because, like, duh. I think what the president and I would both like to say uh, to you today, contrary to what some of you may have reported, uh, we're together totally on this agenda to move America forward. Yeah, you know, I, I just, together. This is a, a weird aside, but I don't know if you saw at the end of the press conference. I know we have a lot more to talk about. 
uh, with the press conference. But at the end of the press conference, they're walking back up the stairs. There's, there's only like four or five steps, right, from the Rose Garden back up to the little walkway at the White House. And Trump and McConnell, like, grabbed hands, and it looked like McConnell was, like, helping Trump up the stairs. And I'm not oh. trying to start a conspiracy theory about the health of Donald Trump, even oh. though I think that his brain is probably unhealthy. like Swiss cheese Very unhealthy. Um, you know, the way that they attacked Hillary Clinton because of, I mean, she had that fainting spell that we now know on, on the September 11th anniversary. There, were, there was also a picture of her, like, she was like hand in hand with somebody else walking upstairs, and they were like, "Oh, this is Hillary Clinton's not yeah. well." She and a it's whole like, s- slew of conspiracies, most of which, or a lot of which, at least, were we now know pushed by Russian trolls and Russian bots. Yeah, but he didn't look well, Trump. He needed help to get up like five stairs. Like it looked like Mitch McConnell was helping him up the stairs, like I did with my kids when they were younger. Hmm. Yeah, and McConnell is much older than than Trump. Is that right? He certainly looks. He, it. I think he is. Yeah. Um, so all those all those well done steaks with ketchup might be. It'll catching catch up, up to you. Yeah, it'll catch, catch up to you. Yeah. Two scoops of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there they are on a bit of a unity tour in front of reporters. Something, of course, nobody actually believed, given Trump's real kind of disgust with McConnell and his support for Steve Bannon, his former top advisor, and now. Uh, has dedicated himself uh, not only to running Breitbart.com, that hate-filled website, but also to running insurgent challenges to established Republicans, people like uh, John Barrasso from Wyoming uh, and Debbie Fisher from... Has anyone ever heard of Debbie Fisher? She's from Nebraska, the senator from Nebraska. Um, And a couple of others uh, who he feels have not done enough to push the president's agenda. Um, So... Uh, the, 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 the strangeness comes in because one of the pledges that these insurgents are making to Steve Bannon as he's traveling around the country and finding challengers is that they would oppose Mitch McConnell. They wouldn't support him uh, in another leadership bid. So while that's going on, um, and and it's still clear from the president that he's close to Bannon, you have McConnell and Trump pretending uh, to work together to have a unified agenda. Now, Trump was asked about the Steve Bannon factor, which could really be a wild card in 2018 and, and could upend the race um, and make, make it a hard time, uh, give a hard time rather, to establishment Republicans or what Bannon perceives as these establishment Republicans who don't do enough in supporting and backing uh, the president. Trump is asked about Bannon's primary strategy. He says that Bannon is generally doing the right thing. I know the Republican senators. Most of them are really, really great people that want to work hard and they want to do a great thing for the American public. But you had a few people that really disappointed us. They really, really disappointed us. So I can understand fully how Steve Bannon feels. You know, it, it, he he's beat up on Bob Corker. He's beat up on John McCain. He's beat up on Lindsey Graham in the past. He's beat up on Ted Cruz in the past. Who else is he beat up on? Ooh, he said uh, Ted Cruz. Is, he said yeah. Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. As, he was just joking. So like, he's not been the nicest person to these senators, and all of them still come back for good boy. 
<laughs> Good boy, Ted. Good boy, Lindsay. They said to Marco Rubio, are you having fun? He's sweating like a pig. I never saw a guy sweat like this. That's right. Yeah, little Marco. Little Marco. He's been mean to little Marco. Wait, like I gotta a, say, the Republicans like who have pig. challenged Trump, so people like uh, Flake, uh, Jeff Flake in Arizona, who's up for re-election, uh, people like uh, Corker, I mean, Corker's retiring. By the way, here's Corker uh, responding to remarks he made last week, which made a lot of news, uh, in which he called the White House adult uh, daycare, adult daycare. And then you, what you heard after is like a huge silence from <laughs> Senate Republicans <laughs> who didn't stand to the president. This is also what outraged Bannon. But after causing that kind of firestorm, which of course was ignited by Donald Trump's tweets, um, picking on, on Corker, he shot back saying it's adult daycare. Uh, here he was yesterday in his first media comments defending those remarks. And again, creating, I think what we're going to see, Peter, is a, a, a division, a, an ever-growing division in the Republican Party between um, uh, kind of maybe more traditional Republicans who never really got on the Trump wagon and who throughout his presidency were have been really disgusted by the way he's conducted himself, but for now are staying quiet in the Trump-Bannon wing um, that is picking out crazies wherever they can find them, people like Roy Moore in Alabama uh, and and other folks, uh, loons really, that represent the, the very extreme of the Republican base. Now, here, here's Corker responding uh, to his comments last week. I said what I said. I stand by what I said. I, I don't, uh, you know, have any reason to want to cause other people to uh, to be put on the spot. Yeah, but that again is causing uh, Bannon to go out uh, and try to find people who wouldn't want only vote the right way uh, when it comes to Trump priorities because you know they haven't been able to pass anything, but will also rhetorically say the kinds of things that don't only defend Donald Trump, but also play to this nationalistic base, uh, which Bannon is trying to grow and I think trying to ensure kind of swallows uh, the Republican Party as a whole. That, I think, ultimately is his, is his long-term goal. You know, I, I don't know if I agree with what you said there in a, in a couple of ways. Like, I don't think that anything is going to make these Republicans come to their senses to sort of say, like, okay, well, this is too much. This has gone too far. Uh, because the only thing that happened to Bob Corker is he decided he's not going to run anymore. And so, like, Donald Trump is giving has given every one of these Republicans a reason to come out and say, we respect the office too much. We respect the process too much. We're not going to allow this guy to continue to do this and say these things and demean us and demean the work of the of the senate. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. These senators are all very serious people, right? They take their jobs very seriously. Very serious. Very important. Serious right. Like they people. all they all consider this to be very important. And they all are senators. very like, there's so many rules they gotta follow and all that stuff. So like I, I don't think that there's anything that's gonna make them come to their senses and go like, whoa, he's gone too far now. Like what's it gonna be? I mean, there's several factors here, right? One, what's it gonna be? Well, I, I, you know, who knows what Trump's going to do, but you're right. Let's let's maybe diagnose the dynamics here. On one hand, you have the Bannon insurgency, which yeah. is a threat to many Senate Republicans and says to them, you step out of line and we're going to run someone to your right. The other fact, and particularly in the House, is 
the districts are so gerrymandered, a lot of them, that there isn't uh, a moderate voice that these lawmakers, these congressional Republicans can be playing to. Um, and so there's no incentive for them, as you point out, to criticize the president. Right. Why would they? Because they have Bannon and they have their gerrymandered conservative constituency that eats that stuff up like red meat. The question then is really the lawmakers who run statewide and in order to win in, in some states, like in Arizona, for instance, have to really bring out uh, a more diverse voter base. And the question for people like Flake and Heller, uh, Dean Heller, the senator from Nevada, 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 whatever. No, it's Nevada. Whatever. Nevada. This state has to get over itself. I mean, you can say it either way. And <laughs> I don't fine. disagree with you. And that's fine. Um, but the question for them is, you know, what kind of political coalition uh, is going to reelect them? And they're going to have to make the calculation, the political calculation about which way they need to go. Certainly, as we're seeing with Flake, who is now, now has a right wing primary challenge. And I, I don't remember her name. Who's yeah, challenging Flake out there. Kelly Ward. Kelly Ward. Uh, he he appears to not see, you know, a, a great poll results from writing a book that distances himself from the present. But it's going to a vary, I think, in uh, in, in the states. It's going to vary in, in every race. But it's also, I think, going to require uh, these GOP senators who up until now haven't really had any kind of spine to stand on, haven't really had a calling to talk about, you know, that to, to say that the Trump presidency so alienates us from the world and also from kind of the American ideal of what a president behaves, how a president behaves from the norms of democracy, from general American norms about how he communicates and how he presents himself on the international stage, uh, that I will just oppose him or I will criticize him. No Senate Republican has done that except for John McCain, who yesterday um, at an award that he was receiving, I believe it's a Liberty Award, um, really... Uh, you know, leaned into the president uh, in a way that you would hope, Peter, many Republican senators would someday echo. Here's John McCain. To refuse the obligations of international leadership and our duty to remain the last best hope of Earth for the sake of some half-baked, spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems. Yeah. But again, a guy who uh, is probably not going to run again, John McCain, who, of course, is battling brain cancer. Uh, by the way, remarkable to see him out and about doing public events uh, as he's undergoing treatment for this really aggressive disease. So John McCain doesn't get much credit from me. I'm sorry. No, that was a nice. Still, that, was a nice no. that was a nice speech. Um, John McCain hasn't done much to stop Donald Trump. He hasn't done much. Uh, to combat this rise of angry Republican voters. In fact, I think if you trace it back to when it went mainstream, I think John McCain is responsible for that when he it, named Sarah Palin as his VP and allowed that to go on. And how important is John McCain's political future really, right? You know, I feel horrible about what he's going through. Sure. But you have to be kind of honest. I, I know we they can't do this on cable news or in the newspapers, but we can do it here. He's only got so much time left. Yeah. And I wish that he would 
act well, look, a bit I, more like Bob Corker. Look, he's he's not running been again. Been like John McCain. He's not running again. Um, Bob Corker's not running again. These guys now feel free to speak their minds. And I think that that's nice. But at the same time, it doesn't matter what they say because they're not going to be here in a year. Yeah. Look, that's all true. But I, I'm also a big believer in uh, the ability to uh, be able to, to redefine yourself and uh, to be able to, hmm. um, you know, take actions that I think redeem your legacy, your character. Yes, he named Sarah Palin. Uh, yes, it, it it led to uh, deep uh, the kind of deep opposition to Obama from the Tea Party, and probably led to the rise of Trump. But you can't forget that John McCain sunk Trump's Obamacare repeal. Sure, not once but twice. Sure, and that so, to so me, that to me, so Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Yes, they did, and that to me, all three of them. Go that ahead. to me is a sign of a strong position, a position that really undercuts not only the president's longstanding priority, but that of the of the Republican Party. And so it may not redeem him completely and fully, and I'm not wearing a John McCain t-shirt to show my love for That's him fair. now, but I do have some degree of newfound respect for him, despite, yes, the circumstances that you paint, that he's not running, that he's sick, that you know he's kind of in the very twilight of his career, of his life, it would have been easier for him in many respects to vote for this law and then to be lauded by the people who are his base, by the by the people in his party for helping push it over the finish line. He chose not to do that. And I think that was probably harder for him than us sitting around this table and Booth would imagine. The thing you need to know about me is that I'm very petty and I will hold a grudge. I mean, I've and known I think you for John many McCain, years, Peter. I, and I, <laughs> I think, think I John know McCain, that. <laughs> I think John McCain has been a net negative to this country. I just, I think when you talk about a politician saving their legacy or rewriting their legacy because of what they're doing on later in life, if you ask a Trump voter, that's what they think Donald Trump did with his yeah. own life. Yeah. That he put all the, you know, grab him by the, you know what, in the past, uh, all of the, the bankruptcies, the Central Park Five. No, nope, you know what? He's a businessman now. He's smart. He's going to make America great again. I, Only I, he hasn't fully done those things, right? If that was actually the has. case. In their eyes, he has. By the way, you should weigh in on this, at BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show on Twitter. Let us know if you think uh, that we, uh, or who you agree with, really. Do you think that there should be uh, some kind of newfound respect for John McCain for killing Obamacare repeal in the legislative process and for standing up to Trump, even rhetorically, in the comments that he made? Or are you on team Jamie and Peter, uh, and you think that on net, that on whole, as you look through John McCain's long career, that he has done um, more harm to this country than good? At BP Show, weigh in, at BP Show, uh, at Igor Volsky on Twitter. Maybe we do a little Twitter poll maybe uh, on on the BP oh. show uh, Twitter uh, account so that people can easily vote and can show we, that they're on Team Igor. I don't, know if we, <laughs> I don't know if we have the audio. I assume we do. One quick thing I, I just wanted to get in because now we have to take a break. Yeah. From the press conference yesterday with Trump talking about the uh, Barack Obama never called the families of troops that died in service. This is the projection. The traditional way if yeah. you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents most of them 
didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate, when I think I'm able to do it. That is a remarkable, remarkable lie. It's disgusting and gross, and it's a great indication that he has not even thought about calling. No, exactly. Or writing. That's and who it's he is. Why he's responding the way he's responding. That's exactly right. No, That's you talk the- about projection. Anytime that he goes overboard like that, other presidents before him didn't call family members of fallen soldiers. Which we know is a provable lie. Provable. It's a provable, easily debunkable, right? Improvable. Like we have proof of that. We have families of soldiers who say that Barack Obama reached out to them, not only reached out to them, but like had them to the White House and consoled them. George W. Bush, who sent a lot of troops into harm's way and sent a lot of troops um, to to meet their maker, brought the families to yeah. the White House to console them and. There was a remarkable tweet I saw from a family member who said that they they saw George W. Bush after he had them to the White House after their their uh, son had died in combat. And they went up to George W. Bush and they called him horrible names and blamed him for their son's death. And the George W. Bush still hugged them and yeah. consoled them as they cried. Yeah. Now, if a family member of a fallen soldier yeah. went to the White House and told Donald Trump what they thought about him for sending them into harm's way and not taking care of them... How do you think he would act? I mean, you would see what he did with the cons. Uh, How do you think he would spoke act? at the DNC you convention and he went after a, them. You think he'd be a shoulder to cry on? I mean, the disgusting thing here is that he's using the deaths of American soldiers to make himself look bigger. Yeah. That's really what's happening That's here. That's who he is. With Donald Trump. All righty, weigh in uh, on Twitter. Do you think John McCain, John McCain should be extolled for how he voted on health care? for going after Trump rhetorically, as we did last night. At BP Show, Addy Gorvolsky will take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. video, Phil's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. You're watching us there, and while you're there, hit that subscribe button. I think there's still a chat room there, right, Peter? Yeah, that's right. can can weigh in. I'll open it up on this computer and interact with you guys, because just love the feedback. You can also uh, reach out to us at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter. We just posted a question, do you think... John McCain redeemed himself, redeemed his legacy with his two votes to kill uh, Obamacare repeal in the Senate. Our next guest, uh, guest Jessica Schulberg, she's the foreign affairs reporter at Huffington Post, appears to be shaking her head. I don't know exactly what that means. Follow her on Twitter. I guess she'll vote uh, at Jessica uh, uh, Schulb, right? At Jessica uh, S C H U L B. On Twitter, why are you laughing? Why that was just such laughing? a great. She's, Igor, 
<laughs> Igor has a problem with names. <laughs> he also didn't remember that we've met. Okay. Just, oh, yeah, wait, 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 wait. You guys have met before? And, he, no. and you coached him on what to say so that he didn't end up in the exact is, situation. I just, I literally just what happened. did I tell you? I know, Peter. I it's Washington, D.C. Anytime you see great anybody, to see you. Know, good to see I you. I said good to see you, but then I looked like an idiot because he was like, great to meet oh. you. <laughs> I just gave you the whole, I, I, I gave you the I outline of how to do this. Where's Bill? Bill always says great to see you. He doesn't know. Uh, To be fair, Bill is way worse about this. That's true. But he knows how to handle it. It, That's true. true. I just try to be. See, here's the thing. Go ahead. I uh, work hard to be truthful. To be authentic. That's what I was doing. I I know. It was. I thought we were meeting for the first time. You wanted to express that sentiment. I want to express that sentiment honestly. I'm not going to lie to you Mm -hmm. and say use some stock phrase. Mm I want to be genuine I've about how I Twitter, feel in that moment. So. <laughs> okay, that's, well, that's my fair. approach, right? I, yeah, I don't hate that. That's a that's a that's a very fine approach to things. I admire it. Thank you. I I appreciate that. I'm sorry for that. calling me, you out in front of all these listeners. I would be consumed with crippling embarrassment if I did that. But you you live your life. <laughs> you know? Igor, right. uh, you want some of these comments before we jump in? Yeah, let's oh. get some comments on how people are bail are, them out are, here. What? Yeah, what they're saying about McCain this, and whatever else. So the question about me. Uh, the question on our Twitter account at BP Show: Did John McCain save his political legacy with healthcare stance? It's a uh, open poll right now. Go and vote on our Twitter at BP Show. Terrence Simmons says McCain is like a broken clock. It's right two times a day. It's great he voted against the health care bill and spoke against Trump, but has supported horrible GOP policies in the past. On the other side of things, William Westerman says, I like McCain. I am not sure how much Palin was his idea. He defended President Obama. Don't agree a lot, but has been dedicated. Keep those comments coming right. on Twitter at <laughs> And it sounds like both of you are on Team Igor, which I appreciate. Both comments there I don't, sound I don't like know. Where, what I don't think the first one was. I think Fox right twice a day is <laughs> all yeah. that flattering. I don't think that backs up your argument. <laughs> you know who you've met at least twice a day. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, my God. Never going to get back. <laughs> oh, no, you can come back anytime after that. No, no. Standing <laughs> invitation. Yeah, yeah. Anytime. Igor's never going to forget open. me. Doors wide too. open, sister. Yeah. Anytime. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> after Wonderful. that. Wonderful. All right, Jessica Schulberg, foreign affairs reporter at Huffington Post, HuffPost.com. Jessica, yesterday at the Rose Garden, the president, as you know, held a wide-ranging press conference where people yelled questions at him, and he yelled back. Mm -hmm. He talked about Iran, uh, which is an issue that uh, he uh, tried to do something on last (laughs) week, which I'm confused about. I think we're all a little confused about talking, of course, about the 2015 Iran deal uh, that froze Iran's nuclear program, a multinational deal reached uh, by President Obama uh, and the major countries of the world. President Trump announced last week that he would be decertifying that deal and kicking back uh, to Congress a decision on what comes next. Now, here's Trump at the Rose Garden talking about his actions. The Iran deal was uh, something that uh, I felt had to be done, and we'll see what phase two is. Phase two might be positive, and it might be very negative. It might be a total termination. That's a very real possibility. Some would say that's a greater possibility. I have no Many idea people Many people saying. what he just said. Um, but, but, you know, we, we oftentimes have guests on to, like, 
dig deep on an issue so that we can get like a full understanding of it. I honestly do not understand what's happening. With okay. Iran. Okay. This yeah, is actually us, yeah, super complicated. Give us a breakdown of what he did. Sure. And then maybe together we can piece together what he just said. Sure. So first I'm going to correct you. It did more than freeze Iran's nuclear program, which is important because Iran was pretty close to being able to really break out and to have nuclear weapons. Yeah. It, it really like downscaled it. it. It rolled back significantly the number of centrifuges that they could have spending, the amount of uranium that they could have enriched, which, you know, the details we don't need to get into, but it, it really scaled back the program. And they, and they so they, and as a result, they have like less centrifuges now mm-hmm. and less uranium. Uh, mater- uranium and the material mm-hmm. that you need to make a nuclear exactly. bomb. You have to destroy some of that and exactly. keep it under a certain level. Exactly. And they've had to open up their nuclear facilities and other facilities um, to international inspectors in a way that they weren't doing before. I mean, it, it really cripples their ability, at least as long as the deal is intact, uh, to produce nuclear weapons. Um, so what Trump did, let's let's back up to 2015 and talk about what Congress did. If you recall, every single Republican in the House and the Senate was opposed to Obama implementing this international nuclear agreement. Including some Democrats, and we should a know. Bunch of people Democrats like Chuck were, Schumer, who's mm-hmm. now the leader, Bob ben, Menendez. Ben Cardin, the head ben of Cardin. ranking member of the Senate yeah. Foreign Relations Committee. Um, I think the House ranking member of the Foreign Relations Elliot. Angle, New York. That's right. It's hard for this. Always shakes that hand yeah. during the State of the <laughs> that's Union. That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's his thing. That's <laughs> also Anyways. known for shaking the hand. Anyway, so Congress decided, like, we want to have some oversight over this terrible, terrible thing that Obama is doing. So they end up with this very strange law that they cobbled together through compromise, um, which basically allowed them to have a vote on the deal. Um, they needed more than a majority in able to kill the deal. They didn't end up having enough votes, but more than a majority of the House and the Senate said, we don't approve of this deal. Obama went ahead and said, screw you guys, we're going to do it. Um, but also written into that 2015 law was this requirement that every 90 days the president certifies that the Iranians are complying by the nuclear agreement, but also that it is still in the national interest to abide by it, that the the benefit that the U.S. receives by waiving sanctions is proportionate to whatever Iran is doing to scale back its program. So that's like a pretty arbitrary uh, standard. It's not a standard that's included in the actual international agreement. Um, it gives the president a lot of leeway. So obviously Obama, every 90 days, he would certify like, this is a good thing. I'm glad I did it. Um, <laughs> Trump comes into office. He's very upset. He doesn't want to keep this nuclear agreement intact. In fact, he ran on uh Killing the deal. deal. He multiple times during the campaign, as you all remember, said that's the worst deal Mm -hmm. he's ever seen. He's such a deal maker. And this is the worst. He said he would renegotiate a better deal, which is like pretty complicated because you have to get the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese (laughs) to say, good idea, dude. But he's a deal artist. He's a deal artist. So he reportedly had all of his advisors, this interagency review that was aimed at killing the deal and giving him a plan B that wouldn't just lead to world war. Uh, most of his advisors, including everyone at the State Department, was like, please don't do this. This is a terrible idea. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis testified earlier this month saying, no, this deal is definitely international interest. You should not kill it. Uh, Trump really wants to kill it. So his option under this 2015 law Congress passed is that if he decertified the deal, then it would automatically bounce back to Congress and it would give Congress 60 days to, quote unquote, fast track legislation 
to reimpose the sanctions that were lifted under the nuclear deal. This, this, that snapback provision you hear right. about. So the fast, sanctions would snap back. So yeah. fast track means that you only need a majority because it wouldn't go through committee. You couldn't filibuster it. You would literally need a straight majority. Republicans could do it without the Democrats. This was considered like a very, very risky move because it would be very hard for a lot of Republicans, especially some of the moderates like Flake and Corker and Collins, to vote against it after the entire party uh, you know, voted not to have the deal in 2015. So everyone's thinking, like, this is going to be a mess. Instead, Trump announces this very bizarre policy where he's going to decertify it, but instead of asking Congress to reimpose sanctions by a majority, he asks them to completely rewrite this 2015 congressional law in a way that changes the U.S.'s obligations under the 2015 international agreement. So two notable things about that. One is it's a lot harder to do. 60 you, votes. You do need 60 votes because it wouldn't be fast tracks. So you need Democrats. So far, no Democrats sound like they want to do this. <laughs> the other thing is, like, it just doesn't make sense to tell Congress to rewrite a domestic law to change, to unilaterally change the terms of what the U.S. has to do under this international agreement that was negotiated between seven countries. Uh, so it, it's a pretty awkward situation that we find ourselves in. Trump did say that if he doesn't get his way with Congress, then he's just going to go ahead and reimpose sanctions himself, which he does have the authority so to do. So what's the point? It's just it's what he does. It's what he did yeah. with healthcare. It's what he yeah. did with immigration is he like throws a bomb into an issue. He takes an issue that's, you know, working sort of well or maybe isn't perfect and we could reach some smart legislative way to patch the holes. Instead, he just says, I want to destroy this, but I don't know what to do. So Congress, you do it. And then when you can't do it, I'm just going to blame you. And then maybe I'll go ahead and make it worse. Now, Trump argues that the reason why he's doing this is because the Iranians are violating some spirit of the deal, that they're continuing to test ballistic missiles, mm -hmm. uh, which have, may have implications for countries in the region, um, that they are continuing to aid groups that the United States considers terrorist organizations, and that... Um, that it's because of these two factors that he thinks that it's no longer in the American national interest. Now, what's wrong with that logic? Uh, that logic doesn't make a ton of sense because those issues were purposely left out of the nuclear agreement because the idea was we get along on so few things and we disagree on almost everything, the U.S. and Iran, um, that if we were to try to get some grand bargain to deal with all of our issues, we would never get an agreement. So let's start with the nuclear issue. That's the most pressing issue for pretty much all the countries that are party to the deal. Um, the Europeans and the Iranians have sort of indicated that they're open to negotiating uh, terms over their ballistic missile program, which was not included in the nuclear deal. Um, one could envision that that could also lead to some sort of talks about their support for the Houthis in Yemen and Hezbollah and Lebanon. But at the same time, you sort of have to recognize, like, this is a sovereign country with, you know, regional interests. They're, they're going to support groups that are boosting their interests just as we support groups that they don't really like in those same countries. So it's kind of a hard argument for us to be making in good faith. Well, the Obama administration did make the argument that just as you as you put it, that if you take the nuclear issue off the table, that it opens up opportunities mm -hmm. for negotiation around these issues. So is Trump just obviously clearly not pursuing that opportunity or is does such an opportunity exist? Was the Obama administration correct that this would lead could lead down the road to greater stability on those other two issues? I think it's not that believable that uh, <laughs> reigning in Iran's nuclear program would lead to, quote unquote, better behavior from Iran on its ballistic missile program and its support for groups that we don't like. Um, I think the argument that they would make 
more honestly behind mm-hmm. closed doors is like, man, these things are all really bad, but we definitely don't want um, Iran with interna- intercontinental ballistic missiles supporting the Houthis and having a nuclear weapon. So let's take off like the most catastrophic problem right away, nuclear weapons, and then we'll try to deal with the other issues. Um, Trump's argument is that if we take away sanctions or take away sanctions relief, we reimpose sanctions and we cripple Iran's economy, um, then, then we have the leverage to make them agree to all these things that they didn't agree to in 2015. But that doesn't make a ton of sense because if we basically reimpose the same punishments that were in place in 2015 and ask them to do all these things they weren't willing to do then, it, it, the logic just doesn't follow. We don't look like we can be trusted. There's not a lot of reason to believe that the Europeans would go along with us if the Europeans continue to um, be open to enforcing the deal and doing business with Iran, then the Iranians really have no incentive to to deal with us, quite frankly. We're speaking by the writer Jessica Schulberg. She's the foreign affairs reporter at HuffPost. Now, Iran did say they're going to continue abiding by the deal. Mm-hmm. The international community, those seven countries, or I guess six minus America, seven or seven total, so seven six, total yeah. six uh, have said uh, they're going to continue to stay in the deal. So mm-hmm. are there any practical implications of the of Trump's announcement? Not yet. So the two things that he's asking Congress to do by rewriting this law is to, and, and we'll see what the actual law ends up looking like after all these negotiations, but the main things that he's asking for is for us to do away with these so-called sunset clauses um, in the nuclear agreement in 10 to 15 years, these limitations on how many centrifuges Iran can have spinning and how much enriched uranium that they can have stored up, um, those restrictions expire. So Iran has forever agreed to abide by the NPT, which says we will not develop nuclear weapons. Um, They forever agreed to open up their sites to international inspectors. Um, But they could, in theory, have more of these materials on hand for peaceful purposes. And realistically, they could reach the point where they want to be able to quickly move towards a nuclear weapon if they feel threatened, um, but not actually have one on hand, which is a, a worrisome scenario for us and something that we should be trying to deal with. Um, but just unilaterally sort of scrapping these expiration dates doesn't make a ton of sense. And the other thing he, that Congress is proposing, I should mention that Senators Corker and Cotton yeah, have, have a, a draft legislation that they're working on um, that would get, get rid of the sunsets. And then also it says if Iran reaches a quote-unquote breakout point of one year or less, which means they could develop a nuclear weapon in a year, then we will reimpose all sanctions. So that sort of goes with the idea that after these 10 to 15 year restrictions expire, if they basically start spinning any more centrifuges or if they basically enrich any more uranium, we're just going to put sanctions back in place. You know, as I listen to you talk about this very knowledgeably, it it occurs to me this is a very complex issue. I'm sure Trump has done a lot of reading. Let's just say, like, (laughs) write your pieces. I I mean, even uh, even if I'm being just generous towards Trump, like, he's not a details guy. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that's a generous explanation of saying that I think he's a moron. But (laughs) he's not, well, that's just me. But uh, but he's not a details guy. Tillerson, yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. right. Just you and Tillerson. I just don't. Trust him to handle a situation like this. Well, it's really alarming is I'm sure there are smart people in the administration. But even when you're listening to so the night before Trump's big speech, you had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who was sort of previewing this announcement. Um, There was times when even Tillerson didn't seem quite up to speed on it. He kept calling it the JAPOA, um, which is the name for an interim nuclear agreement that was finalized years before the 2015 one. And it didn't actually do that much. It was sort of like a a benchmark, like, look, we've crossed this bridge. Now we can hurdle to the final step. 
And what he meant to say is the JCPOA, which is the full 2015 deal. I'm not trying to nitpick, but it is sort of alarming. I mean, you, you have to know this, the basics. This president who's so non-details oriented yeah. to the point where you have to assume that his top advisors, his cabinet, are the people who really are digging into the weeds. And then you have the secretary of state who's calling it by the wrong name. And it's just not even clear that his advisors are getting through to him. Um, on this phone call, Tillerson said, you know, we're... We're going to empower the Treasury Department to to sanction a lot of IRGC officials and entities. Um, the IRGC is part of Iran's military. Uh, we don't like them. They do support a lot of actors in the region that we are fighting against. Um, but Tillerson had said, you know, we don't necessarily want to sanction the entire military because if you describe an entire military as a terrorist organization, then when you run into them in the battlefield, you're supposed to kill them. <laughs> we don't want That's to just be point. going head to head with the Iranian military we if we run in into them war. in Iraq, yeah. if we run into them in Syria. And the next day, Trump comes out and he says, and I'm going to tell the Treasury Department to designate the entire IRGC as a terrorist organization. Oh um, behind the scenes, what ended up happening is he had the Treasury Department designate, which is not quite as severe as if the State Department had designated, which I assume is what Tillerson was referring to. But they're just so imprecise in their language that you almost have to hope that behind the scenes there's someone <laughs> who sort of knows what's going on. I mean, and but, maybe there, but maybe there isn't. But maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't. For, the, per, for the reason that there are vacancies in the State Department mm -hmm. all across government. I mean, Tillerson has purposely not filled those positions. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they don't have those experts mm -hmm. who could tell Tillerson what the name of the agreement is. And sure. I will it, say that the not in the top Top, top host, but I will say that the uh, State Department officials who handled the Iran portfolio before, a lot of them have stayed on. These are career guys. They do know what they're mm. talking about, and they have been very aggressively saying, well, maybe there's only this so is a much pretty good idea. <laughs> I think when... that's the thing, is if someone doesn't want to listen to your conclusion and they're the president of the United States. And so uh, given that this legislation is moving, that, as you mentioned, Bob Corker, who's the outgoing Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman and Tom Cotton, the Who's senator. The, how are you going to describe Tom Cotton? From Arkansas, <laughs> uh, who may be, um, my goodness, what position has he been considered for? It's Chief now... Warmonger. Oh, she's. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a new title. It's a new title that Trump has made CIA, up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, CIA. That's right, Chief. CIA, because Pompeo might, might move the over State to the State Department. That's now a horrifying that thought, really? Is it's he probably uh, going to be pushed out. Considered, being considered for that role? His yeah. name is, is, fl is floating out God there. Um, yeah. What what then do you think is the likelihood that that legislation will see passage, given that it needs 60 votes uh, and given that Democrats who need to uh, some of whom at least need to support this deal are saying, well, you can't just unilaterally mm -hmm. renegotiate a deal that seven countries came together in agreement on. Um, I think the chances of it passing in current form, by current form, I mean the way Cotton and Corker have described it. They haven't actually released the language yet. They just released sort of a fact sheet, and Corker did a phone call where he walked reporters through what they were envisioning, but they haven't actually released legislation. Um, but the chances of it passing in the form that they're describing, I think, are zero. Um, you don't have really any Democrat saying that they're in favor of it. Some of the Democrats who are the most loud, uh, most loud, loudest uh outspoken critics of the Iran deal are now saying this is a bad idea, this doesn't make sense. And you even have some Republicans. I think it was the uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Ed Royce, mm. um, said, you know, we should probably be careful about just reimposing sanctions. You know, I didn't like the deal, but it is in place and we do need to worry about how our European allies are going to react to this. Um, so I think Congress here would have a pretty hard time getting this through. I think what's more worrisome is some sort of compromise legislation. I think even people who think it's a bad idea 
to change the terms of the deal are also afraid that if they don't do something to keep Trump happy, then he's just going to throw a sledgehammer to the whole thing and make it worse. So I think you're going to see sort of this like delicately crafted agreement by Corker and maybe Cardin uh, to do something which does probably do something that the Iranians could interpret as a violation of the deal. Um, but it's maybe something that both sides could live with so that we don't have to deal with whatever Trump and wants to do. And that's also what interest groups like AR- ARP, <laughs> no, uh, APEC uh, are. <laughs> Same thing, really. Same thing. <laughs> A lot of overlap in the membership. Uh, the um, uh, the lobby uh, who lobbies on behalf of Israel uh, that they, uh, I assume, are calling for some kind of bipartisan deal. They, of mm-hmm. course, are very critical of the deal. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, uh, when it was signed in 2015, but let me ask you more broadly, what is Why is it that you have Democrats who voted against the Iran deal in 2015 uh, st- being more supportive of it now, even some Republicans? Is it because it, it appears to be working, that Iran appears to be living under its conditions? I'll give you a cynical view and a, a more... The less cynical view. Um, the less cynical view is that, yes, it's working for now. Um, I think you could argue in good faith that it's one thing to say this deal is bad. I don't want to enter it. And another thing to say, once you're already in the deal, that we should leave it. I think even people who would criticize it would say, well, we would we would lose a lot of credibility. We were trying to keep North Korea from going, you know, full on nuclear weapons. The message crazy. that it sends to North Korea is, is yeah, another yeah. Question. I think that's a compelling yeah. argument, and I think if people are making it, we should take them at their word. Um, and there is the concern about now that we've already entered it and we're in it with our European allies, do we really want to piss them off by just walking away and leaving them hanging? Um, I forgot to mention earlier that reimposing sanctions against Iran is essentially reimposing sanctions against our allies because we still have a primary embargo against Iran. We don't uh. trade with them. So our sanctions are mostly are almost entirely secondary. They, they target pe- other people who trade with Iran. All right, Jessica Schulberg, she's the foreign affairs reporter. So sorry to cut you no off. Worries. We're running out of time at HuffPost. HuffPost.com, at Jessica Schulb on Twitter. I'm Yuvalski. Quick break. We'll be right back to the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, Bill Press Show, good morning. It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. I'm Igor filling in for Bill Press. We really have a lot to get through, mostly because of a super strange uh, press conference the White House, the president, held alongside Mitch McConnell, just kind of awkwardly standing there, gazing at the craziness where the reporters screaming their questions, the president emphatically answering those questions, shushing the reporters. Really a mess if I've ever seen one. But hey, it's the Trump administration, so 
no one's that surprised. It's a pretty good description. Right? Yeah, yeah. that's kind of, I mean, I, I didn't watch it. I was in passing, saw it on the television, and then later read about it. Um, and I thought, is this a zoo? What is it? It's like a morning zoo. Folks. It's like a morning talk yeah. show zoo. Is what it it was like. crazy. It was crazy. I didn't see it when it happened either. I didn't even know it was happening. I, I, I looked at Twitter and saw, the first comment I saw was, uh, about him saying that no other presidents called the families of fallen troops. And I was like, oh, well, I've missed a hell of a presser. Yeah. So I went back and watched it. Yeah. I the Art of the Projection, uh, Donald Trump, a new book coming out later this year. We'll get into all of uh, that, uh, with, with tell you exactly what happened, break it all down. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news all right, so <laughs> man by the name of Daniel Rushing, a 64-year-old man, was pulled over by the police, and he was arrested because he had meth in his car. Aye. He was driving 42 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone, which you cannot do, and he had meth in his car. But here's the deal. This was in December of 2015. As it turns out, it was not meth. And he told the officer at the time it wasn't meth. He says, that's glazed from a Krispy Kreme donut. Mm. I get one every other Wednesday. The every officers weren't Wednesday. buying it. He was booked and charged with possessing amphetamines while armed with a weapon. Because, this, of course, uh, being in Florida, he had a... Uh, carrying a gun, Registered to have a gun. Yeah. Well, it turns out he was not actually carrying math. It was the glaze. And just this week, he was awarded $37,500 for the wrongful arrest. Oh, that's going to buy a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts. Well, a lot of donuts. He should get free Krispy Kreme donuts for life. He should get free meth for life for that. Okay. I mean, my God. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> what a problem. Ileana <laughs> uh, ross Leighton, we, we know she's not going to be running for re-election, so people are running for her seat. Well, there is a new candidate running for her seat. Her name is Bettina Rodriguez-Aguilera. And she said when she was seven years old, she was abducted by aliens and brought onto a spaceship. Oh. I'm not kidding. Well, weren't we all? Yeah, yeah. Who, who among us? And then later on, 10 years later, she said it happened again. She's not being, like, flip about it. She's being very, very upfront. She says uh, a lot of people have been abducted by aliens. Um, and she's... Well, has has the question, has Steve Bannon endorsed her yet? Well, that's a good, that's a very good right. question. Right, that's probably the barometer. That's a very good question. I mean, that sounds like... Something he'd do, right? And we go up north, uh, Niagara Falls. A 10-year-old boy fell over Niagara Falls, but he lived. Oh, wow. I feel like this happens like every year. We get a story <laughs> about somebody who fell over Niagara Falls, and they live to tell about it. Here's what happened. Uh, the boy, the 10-year-old boy, was sitting on a railing, which if you've been to Niagara Falls, you, there's not Don't a, lot, se there's not a lot separating you from the falls, right? Like if you really have, if you really want to go over, you, you can go over. This kid was sitting on the railing by the falls, and he fell over. Uh, he hit his head, but he was fine. And he tried to swim a little bit, but the current was too strong, as you can imagine, Niagara Falls. And he went over the Horseshoe Falls. And the, they got him. He's in stable condition. They're still investigating the incident. But he lived. He's going to be fine. Whew. Isn't that wild? That is wild. My it's goodness. Crazy. Again, God. though, like I don't understand how these people survive the the fall over the falls. It happens a lot. 
Haven't probably, probably when you're 10, you're kind of a bit more bouncy and Exactly, bones haven't formed yet. Paul. Peter, right. you survived death. Don't you have any insight yeah. into this? I have zero insight. <laughs> you know what? You die when you're supposed to die. Uh, That's my new saying. That's insightful. <laughs> On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, everywhere you want to be, the Bill Press Show. Good morning. Welcome to the program. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. Uh, we uh, phew, have really been dissecting this press conference the president held at the Rose Garden right alongside Mitch McConnell. The purpose of um, that conference was after the two had some kind of delicious lunch uh, is to show unity to reporters. And I got to say, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a press conference where the president and the Senate majority leader uh, of the same party had to actually say things uh, that prove that they are close Friends, really BFFs. Just to give you a bit of a flavor, here's Donald Trump um, at that press conference talking about how much love he has for Mitch McConnell. My relationship with this gentleman mm. is outstanding, has the been outstanding. Best. The best of relationships, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, friends forever. We're joined now by White House columnist at The Hill, uh, Niall Stanage. Uh, good morning, Niall. Thank you. Thank My you pleasure. For, for being here. Good you were here. not at the press conference. I wasn't, sadly. We were talking about this in the break. I thought that it was going to be a routine press briefing. I Why had a, were you a piece By the way, to write. Pro tip in the Trump era. <laughs> There's, no routine. Routine. <laughs> There's no routine. There are no routine <laughs> press briefings. But anyway, I didn't go down because I was writing. And then before I knew where we were, there was a call for the people who were down there to go to the Rose Garden. So I, I missed all the excitement, I'm sad to say. But you you watch oh, some of it, I'm, I'm sure. And just let me give you, maybe you can describe for our listeners and viewers how this differed from the typical Rose Garden press conference. Well, I mean, the Rose Garden is typically used for, you know, rather formal ceremonial events that tend to follow a pretty normal orthodox template. And, you know, there's maybe one or two questions from the media, maybe a few more, but certainly nothing as uh, chaotic as we saw yesterday. And, and then the president usually comes comes up with kind of a list of names that, mm. that are given to him. And he calls in reporters in order and they're all sitting there calmly waiting to be called. Right. Here it was really a shouting match where the reporters were like animals trying to get their question in. And he was just like pointing around um, and, and taking just random, a random array of questions, which in and of itself is OK, I think. Mm -hmm. But the way it was handled... That that he has, you know, he usually operates with a certain degree of derision towards mm -hmm. the press, and I think it's in moments like this that it's so evident and, frankly, like kind of disgusting. Well, I mean, I I think that he was. It, it's unusual to have a press conference like that where he's just choosing people at random. People are competing for his attention. What you, I mean, all of these events, as we know, are are geared towards TV audiences yeah. at this point, and so. This one yesterday, because of its lack of organization, you know, cameras weren't set up in the positions they don't be set up. Mm. You could hear reporters kind of either trying to shout over each other or talking amongst themselves about who was asking what and things like that. And there was beyond the 
broad premise that it was to show unity with McConnell. There was no real obvious purpose. I mean, all these questions were coming up at random, whether it was about Russia or the NFL or Steve Bannon or the relationship with McConnell himself or tax reform. It was very... uh, very free form. Now, sometimes, of course, we in the press corps complain that, uh, at least in the pre-Trump era, things had become too scripted. Uh, that's never a criticism that we can really have in this uh, administration. And so it was uh, free-flowing but chaotic, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you more about the media. You have a great piece in uh, The Hill called Who's Winning Trump's War with Media? Mm. Now, this is a president who in some ways ran a campaign against the media when he was running for president. He picked on reporters, um, in some ways condoned violence against these reporters. I mean, you had NBC reporter Katie Turr who had to be walked to her car by Secret Service agents because they felt that her life was really at risk. He regularly retweets just crazy memes about CNN, whether it be wrestling a CNN logo or uh, a tweet that he deleted of a CNN reporter being hit by a by a train. I mean, just crazy. Crazy, crazy things. And just last week, and I think this isn't getting enough attention, really. Just last week, he said, uh, uh, Trump said it was frankly disgusting. The press is able to write whatever they want and people should look into it. That is disgusting. The press is able to write whatever they want and people should look into it. And also went on uh, on like a tweet storm about how like NBC should have his license taken away, which first of all. It's not how this works. Right. <laughs> it's like my it's like my granddad, you know, yelling about a show that he doesn't like. They should take their license away. Well, that's not how it works. But like he clearly, somebody wrote something a long, long time ago. Like during the first couple of months of the Trump campaign, it feels like a long, long time ago. Where In they the said, world far, far away. Yeah, <laughs> Trump never really wanted to be president. He really wanted to be communications director or mm. like press secretary. You know, mm. like he loves the media. Mm. He loves the media, and it's good for him politically to bash the media. Mm-hmm. But we would not have Donald Trump without the media. There's right. no way of. I mean, I don't care if you're a Trump supporter or a Trump hater. You cannot ignore that fact. I mean, he mm. is a creation of the American media. Right. And I think as well, when he particularly was at the start of his run for the presidency and, and during the time he was a candidate, the one thing that was an obvious skill of his, whether you love him or loathe him, was catering to the media's appetites, yeah. designing events in a way that maintained media attention or was a magnet for media attention and kind of driving that narrative. And, you know, I, I know this isn't a, an audience where being fair to Donald Trump is terribly popular, but he did make <laughs> himself available to the media in a way that other candidates, other Republican candidates didn't. As yeah. well. But yeah. in this war here, is he escalating in the past week uh, or uh, because clearly it been it plays to his base to some degree there. There's political advantage. But it also feels like there's real damage that's being done to what we consider a, you know, uh, a, a, a standard that the First Amendment has laid out in terms of freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the oath of office he himself took to uphold the Constitution of which the First Amendment is a part. Yeah, I think that's a great point And it's a really serious question. Uh, one of the interesting things about all of this, and, and someone who I spoke to for that piece mentioned the idea that 
you're you're moving now out of the realm of Donald Trump individual or celebrity or candidate criticizes the media and into the realm of a president of the United States threatens to use the levers of power mm-hmm. that he holds against media outlets that he dislikes. Um, to Peter's point about the NBC license, and to explain briefly to, to your audience, NBC does not own a license. <laughs> right. NBC is a network of affiliate stations, all of which uh, apply for and typically get their licenses renewed without any great Through the FCC. Through the FCC. But it's um, the mere suggestion... And some people saw it as a sort of a, a, a smoke signal to at least Republican commissioners in the FCC to start looking at these stations or to have some kind of yardstick uh, pertaining to coverage and the sympathetic or not sympathetic nature of coverage. What are the factors? Let me ask you about the license renewals, which, as you point out, are fairly automatic mm. uh, for individual stations. The FCC is composed of uh, Democratic commissioners and Republican commissioners. I, I'm assuming here the Republicans have been mostly silent um, about Trump's latest remarks because they really take their jobs seriously. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but let me ask you about what that process looks like, and is there a real threat that they will have some kind of con- uh, some kind of yardstick, as you put it, to measure content, which appears to be the danger? I, there is a danger of that. I think that. The political realities are such that they would be more likely to, um, frankly, invent a pretext on which to do it rather than state openly, we're doing this, you know, for political reasons yeah. or because the coverage of the president is too is too negative. But I mean, the FCC does have uh, considerable power. Just a, a slight digression from that. One of the other interesting things in this current Trump sort of blast against the media was the suggestion that he should be given equal time, which was one of his yeah. tweets recently. So <laughs> firstly, the idea that he's deprived of publicity is kind of laughable. And secondly, that, that gets to a whole thing of the fairness doctrine, say, which is I, a whole I, other issue. Since we've been doing this show, there have mm-hmm. been two instances where we had members of the United States Senate come on the show and say we need to bring back the fairness doctrine. Tom Harkin did it first, who's no longer in the Senate. Uh, and um, uh, from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow Stabenow came on the show and also called for uh, the Fairness Doctrine. And both times that that happened, clips of this show were played on Fox News. It started a whole big thing. Barack Obama had to come out and issue a statement about it, saying, like, we're not going to go down that path. Mm -hmm. And it was a furor. I mean, people lost their minds at the idea that the Fairness Doctrine would come back. And Donald Trump mentions it, essentially. Mm -hmm. Blip. Yeah. And the thing that is further surprising about that is the whole people, I mean, the the core constituency against the Fairness Doctrine is conservative talk radio, the people who have done the most to promote. Maybe some history here, Peter, is that that is actually in some ways what gave birth to talk radio. Is that right? The repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. Yes, exactly. Because, I mean, I'm not going to get too, too far into it, but like, you know, AM talk radio was not really what it was that long ago, right? Rush Limbaugh kind of came along and helped change it, but like it used to be owned by and run by Sally Jesse Raphael. It was it was like for like stay-at-home moms. And then like because of this whole birth of you know, this radical conservative movement, then you have like Limbaugh, you have Hannity, you have all these guys that just just exploded onto the AM radio scene. Bob Graham Bob Grant, 
Grant. Yeah, Grant. Bob Grant. Grant. Bob Grant. Grant. Yeah, you're yeah. one of your favorites. I know, one of my old favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in terms of then what the FCC can do, mm-hmm. um, is there some kind I mean, it, do you feel like there's any substance behind the tweets? Has there been any kind of movement behind the scenes to operationalize any of this? Or is this just kind of a Twitter chaos that he likes to cause? The, the people who I spoke to who have more expertise in this area than I do personally suggest it's more the second, that it is more about him venting or finding a target or putting a target on the media than uh, there's likely to be a real effort to remove NBC's license or any other, well, the NBC the stations, affiliate yeah, stations yeah. licenses or any other uh, issue like that. They, the, the people that I spoke to see it more as an approach aimed at firstly sort of riling up uh, President Trump's base further against the media, but also just this ongoing effort that he has to portray the quote unquote mainstream media as his enemy, as, as a biased sort of um, movement aimed at uh, uh, undercutting him. And therefore, I think one obvious purpose of that is to try to delegitimize criticism of him or negative stories that appear about him. You know, I think that part of the danger, I mean, outside of the clear First Amendment implications and the role of the media the mainstream media, as, as we know it, the networks and cables, informing people about what's happening and the president so vocally and clearly denouncing that as fake news or, or whatever else, is that in some ways then it pushes people into the digital world uh, where many people get their news from outlets or platforms, I should say, like Facebook. I think some polls said 40 percent of Americans or something get their news from Facebook. And we know mm-hmm. that the the problematic element of that is that you have foreign actors influencing that news and putting forward information that is clearly false, but is designed to push a certain political agenda that ultimately, of course, benefits Trump himself. Mm-hmm. Like, is it too conspiratorial for me to connect the dots in this way? I don't know if it's too conspiratorial or not. I mean, we're, we're living in very strange times, <laughs> but certainly I think both the, the push uh, to digital uh, platforms, as you put it, has, has the issue of exposing people to those kind of actors. But but also has the effect of uh, bringing people to a situation where their beliefs and prejudices become sort of self-perpetuating yeah. and amplified by virtue of only seeking out outlets that affirm existing opinions. Now, that that's a broader issue in American society right now. But I think it, it reaches its most uh, pronounced manifestation in those kind of digital and social media platforms that you're so, talking about. you know, I always wonder then, what is the way back from that? Mm. Because Republicans have always gone after the media. I mean, you remember, and i trying to think, was it in 2012, during one of the debates when Newt Gingrich, who was then running for president, had his big moment yeah. that gave him that huge bump yeah. at a CNN debate when he went after the New York Times or CNN or some in the mainstream media. Obviously, the Republican base loves it, this uh, clearly Trump has taken it to a place no one, no one, none, none of them had before. So is there a way to kind of unpeel some of this after we exit the Trump era? Um, and are Republicans that you've spoken to are conservatives concerned uh, about the extremes at which we're at 
with going after um, a body that is, again, in a democracy designed to create informed voters. There aren't many conservatives who are rushing to defend the media for the reason that you just (laughs) mentioned. You know, that that, uh, criticism of the media, hitting the media is a popular thing to do in Republican circles. Now, the question of how we step back from it, I think, is a bit of a, a different question because one of the things that the piece that you're referring to went into was the fact that even though uh, Trump himself is so confrontational with the media, it's in fact outlets or in some cases individual reporters who are seen as having stood up to him who have reaped a certain amount of commercial so this benefits is like from that. James a- Acosta from CNN, right. Jim Acosta Jim from a CNN, mm. uh, Katie Turr to some degree. Right. Yeah, I mean, we talked some about about folks. Katie just a, a few moments ago on having to be walked to her car by her secret the Secret Service, which was a disgraceful situation to, for her to have to uh, be placed in. But you know, not not that one is directly outweighs the other, but her her book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for three or four weeks now. The book is all about her experiences covering the Trump campaign and and what that was like. Now, I'm not saying that makes it all okay. I'm saying that there is clearly an audience for either individual reporters or media outlets that do uh, stand up to uh, what some people see as intimidation of the media. Yeah, I mean, I I see that that kind of tension, that kind of back and forth, you know, creates what what you term the Trump bump. Uh, That uh, people watch, people tune in. It's Mm. very reminiscent of like sports and wrestling and that and the back and forth. Mm. That is clearly entertaining. Mm -hmm. But I guess the greater concern is, but is it actually informing Americans right right, on the substance of what Trump is doing, and then on the substance of the different candidates who are going to be running for for office? Are they able to make an informed decision based on like a he said, he said exchange between Acosta from CNN and and Trump? I mean, I would argue no. And then the question is, is the last bastion of presenting, at least in the TV realm, in the broadcast realm of presenting information in a helpful way? I mean, is that then like the evening news? I mean, who is that? That, That's a great question. I mean, I I suppose it's it's in a way, the most mainstream of the mainstream media. So it, it does become things like the evening news, at, you know, the New York Times. Or and like the, the morning Post, shows, maybe, the morning degree. And the morning shows, maybe. But the, the trend that you're talking about, I think, is a very dangerous one where uh, the media is firstly extremely fragmented. Uh, secondly, there's the tendency that we just talked about to reinforce existing opinions. And, and thirdly, there's just, it seems to me, this uh, assault on the idea of objective facts yeah. sometimes. There's this that you're us- entitled to your own facts. That if there's something right. you don't like, you can actually go and seek out facts that back up your worldview. Right. And in fact, the whole phrase fake news, which in, at its inception had a specific meaning, news that was actually produced fictionally, has come, it seems to me, to represent sort of... An, Information that I dislike has yeah. just become sort yeah. of fake news. That's exactly you know? what's happened. I mean, the, it, it's so it was so quick mm. that right. we went from, you know, the Pizzagate story, mm-hmm. you know, the Comet Ping Pong story right. that there was a child sex ring operating out of a very good pizza shop here in Washington <laughs> right. D.C. I've never right. been there. It's good. Oh, you'd like go. it. I mean, okay. if you like pizza, you'll like oh. it. 
that we went from that as as being like the ultimate fake news story. That I mean, it was like a matter of a month right. that we went from this is a fake news story to just Donald Trump co-opting it and everybody just calling real stories. I mean, fake people news, don't even remember like that that's the origin, that the no, origin were, was actually made up and manufactured news. He then adopted that phrase, completely redefined it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's something his base, as you point out, uses to throw it's at. It's just news we don't like. Exactly. Right. News yeah. we don't like. Yeah, And has become a quite effective label to to sort of uh, undercut the legitimacy of a lot of those more critical stories. I think. Is there a way wow. that these organ these um, CNN, MSNBC, mm-hmm. uh, I mean Fox to a much lesser degree, uh, are operating differently um, in the Trump era? I have noticed. I'll have to say that they are far more direct mm-hmm. in labeling lies, lies. I mean, mm-hmm. you remember during the campaign. Mm-hmm. A bunch of these organizations, I mean, I think the New York Times and, and the AP gave these explanations for why they're not saying that Trump lied when he says something untrue because mm. they don't know if his intent was to mislead. Now mm. it feels like that's out the window and you mm. open the New York Times or CNN and and they clearly are using the word lie. Mm. But then, of course, that only reignites Trump's cycle of calling that fake news because they called them a liar. I mean, it feels like, as you say, the, 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 the goal here is to inform very different audiences. So on one hand, things that are lies being called lies, but I'm also concerned that it then marginalizes those outlets in the eyes of mm-hmm. the folks who you may want to like bring back over to like rational conversation. But maybe that's maybe that's impossible to do. <laughs> I mean I think that is a real challenge for for the kind of outlets that we're talking about. Outlets that do not see themselves as overtly uh, ideological or partisan. Can you hold the president and the administration to account while not getting sucked into being seen as the enemy of the administration. In other words, that 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 can coverage be rigorous and analytical and accurate without becoming sort of uh, gratuitously confrontational or without it being seen uh, by whatever number of centrists or independents remain in the country as uh, the media trying to get, yeah. you know, Donald Trump. I mean, I'm sure you've struggled. You you guys at the Hill have struggled with that to some degree. I mean, you, I'm sure, have had conversations about mm. how do how do we kind of solve that that difficult cube, right? Yeah, we have, and and um, I think most uh, people in the media have. Yeah. The, the, you know, one of the difficulties I think is judging from the emails we get. Sometimes people <laughs> just, you know, and it, there are certainly members of the public who just think that journalists just sit around inventing stuff or deciding what unfairness we're going to perpetrate today. And uh, it's big meetings and conference calls. Yeah, 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 where yeah, every, yeah. Uh, people are assigned certain love to fake be in on stories. Those oh, you're not. No. Oh. Oh, I'm not, yeah, I'll try I'm to not. get you an invite. Thanks. Yeah. So that, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the media has done a great job in persuading the public that we actually try to be fair. But there we go. That's a, that's a whole bigger conversation in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Or Neil Stanage, he's the White House columnist at The Hill at Neil Stanage. Very quickly, Neil, you have another piece here. Uh, called Trump tries to turn back the clock on Obama era. Mm. He's failed to do that legislatively. Now mm. it feels like he's using what that what that Obama phrase 
uh, phone, paper and phone, phone right. and paper right. to do it through executive action. Yet the Republicans who criticized Obama for doing mm-hmm. that are like totally. applauding, applauding this as as a great, great accomplishment. Totally, totally fine now. Yeah, I mean the the you know clearly people. Uh, whether they're, well, particularly critics of President Trump actually, look and say, well, look at all his failures legislatively, particularly the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's true. All of those things have failed. Doesn't necessarily mean that he hasn't got anything done. I think... He bragged about the courts, the the vacancies right. he filled yesterday at the Rose Garden as a big accomplishment that's being underreported, which I think it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there are other things that I think will you know, clearly give uh, liberals or people who are broadly of the left real cause for concern on the environment, on climate change. Obviously, there's the Iran deal. And and even something like, like DACA, which he has sort of wended this very peculiar course on, at times expressing some degree of sympathy, at times suggesting he'll do a deal with, you know, Chuck and so Nancy, confusing. and then just, you know, at the same time suggesting that he's going to end it all and by next March, it'll all be uh, over and done with. Um, so the, it's, the, the piece was just really pointing out the things that he has done by executive order or fiat. Uh, it's not only a question of, uh, you know, what has happened legislatively. But ultimately, the goal now, it feels like the play is to keep the base happy into 2018 so they can retain power of, of both chambers. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the president has always placed a real premium in keeping that base stoked up. He thinks that's how he won, you know, justifiably. He thinks that's how he won last year. And so if you can keep those people energized, I think the calculation is that there isn't really much of a center ground left in American politics. Therefore, so long as you can appeal to your core supporters and get them out and to the polls, you have at least a fighting chance. Yeah, and that's why Steve Bannon's efforts are, he sees as helpful. Yes, exactly. He sees that as part of that whole broader picture of keeping people energized, keeping people believing that they're fighting a a sort of vital battle and all of that. It's so funny. I was just talking about this the other day. Like, we followed Breitbart since its inception, Mm. when it was actually Andrew Breitbart, Mm. uh, when he was around for the company. And their whole thing back there was like everything is war, right? Uh, you look at how they sort of position themselves. Mm-hmm. They were they were at war. Hashtag war, right? right? Seriously, yeah, yeah. In, in all honesty, <laughs> like I remember, like the there was a picture whenever you know before they sort of became so splintered. There was Andrew Breitbart and Dana Loesch mm-hmm. and a couple of other writers. Are all, oh, I forgot she was over there. Oh yeah, they were all. This was back in like two thousand. 12 or something like that and they're all posed at at like CPAC and it's like this is war and I was like oh my god everything they write about is it's war and Bannon right who is Breitbart mm. you know is now it's war everything's war that's just so violent it's ugh. it do, I mean you can though gin people up with if, sure. if, if if by those sort of calls I mean it's interesting to compare that to for example Mitch McConnell uh, yesterday, who's in his Mitch McConnell way, saying, "Well, you've got to win." Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. it's a it's yeah. a rather less fiery call to arms than this kind of things we hear from Bannon and Breitbart yeah. and things. Yeah, like that. but you know, also a way to drive clicks and improve the business. And I, I, part of it, I think, is ideological, but part of it is it also is probably a pretty big 
moneymaker for them. All right, Niall Stanage, I think I called you Neil okay. earlier, Not which I apologize crap. for. <laughs> uh, Close enough for but you, there you, go. you are the White House <laughs> columnist at The Hill, at Niall Stanage on Twitter, and of course, thehill.com, where you can read his great pieces. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back at you with Sam Baker. He's the healthcare editor at Axios. Stay with us. Oh, I hope Hillary runs. Is she going to run? I hope. Hillary, please run again. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. That's right. And while you're on the Bill Press Show YouTube channel, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You'll see uh, lots of great videos, both of the show and special content. By the way, I don't know if Peter has mentioned it this hour, but if you'd be also become a Patreon patron at patreon.com backslash BP show. Um, the folks here at the show have produced a great podcast that's only available to Patreon members. It's called The Making of Bernie Sanders, where they talk to a lot of Bernie insiders about how Bernie became the Bernie of 2016. We had Tad Devine in studio. We had Michael Briggs, his, uh, former chief of staff in studio. Uh, we had Nina Turner in here. Uh, and Bill actually tells the story, for those of you who don't know the whole story, of what happened at his house because Bernie essentially launched his campaign in Bill Press's living room. Uh, he had a bunch of pollsters and sort of pundits meet and talk to Bernie about whether or not he should actually consider running. And it happened at Bill's house. And he tells the whole story. I won't give too much away, but we're going to start releasing that either late this week or early next week, but probably later this week. I really want to get it out there. We're going to start releasing one episode a week. You could only get it if you subscribe at patreon.com slash BP Show. Now, what I wonder, and I guess I'll have to listen to it on patreon.com slash BP Show, is whether or not in that initial meeting the pollsters predicted or could have predicted the kind of wave and impact that Bernie would have on the primary campaign. You'll have to listen to the have show. Have to listen to find out. Okay. Sam Baker, good morning. My old friend Sam Baker, who I think I met like in 2008. Nine or something. Yeah, way as... back when. I'm surprised you remember. What, Peter? We've had a whole thing. Not... Igor has had a hard time remembering guests that he's met and has not met. I've... Oh, Igor. <laughs> well, no, you don't have them, the same and problem. And I told them the cheat code for Washington yeah, D.C. Nice is, to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> Come on. It's nice to see you. <laughs> Listen, I just try to be authentic, right? So if I'm really, I think I'm meeting you for the first time. I'm really excited to meet you. I'm like, hey, it's great to meet you. I'm not gonna like use some stock phrase just so that I don't. I'm not embarrassed because I just want to communicate with honesty to people. My so that's why is I, I just do. always remember. <laughs> <laughs> I just care enough. By the way, Sam, don't worry. Igor got very roasted by our 730 guest, Jessica okay, Schulberg. For... Jessica Schulberg destroyed you. She really did. She wonderful. really, it was rough. I ended up, I didn't realize she told me 
as I was telling her how great it was to meet her, that she that I had interviewed her for a job. See, but that's fine for me not to remember. remember, What you're telling me, you remember every job candidate, you would be able to recognize them. Even if it was like five, six years ago, you're telling me it's not okay to forget those faces that you've met maybe for like an hour, right? That's strange to you? I would remember. Yeah. If I saw him face to face, I would remember. I, I, I feel, I mean, in all, in all confidence, I feel like I could say that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, dude. Yeah, well, sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, my yes. dear. <laughs> 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 okay, great. Even Trump. Speaking of Trump uh, and the health care law, yesterday, uh, the president, <laughs> our president, Donald Trump, um, talked about where we are uh, in the Republican effort to repeal Obamacare. And he pronounced, following several executive actions he's taken over the last couple of years, that guess what? Obamacare, it's no more. Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone. It's no longer, you shouldn't even mention, it's gone. There is no such thing as Obamacare anymore. It is a, and I said this years ago, it's a concept that couldn't have worked. Sam, what's happened to Obamacare? (laughs) Obama and where did it go? <laughs> Obamacare is finished. It's dead. Uh, you know, really quick, before you get, I don't, I don't yeah, want to yeah. steal any thunder from you, but like, this is a great example of Republicans saying, well, the government doesn't work, and then working so hard to make sure the government doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like, th- there's a lot there to unpack, I think, obviously, but. You know, all the Republicans he's saying is like, Obamacare's not going to work. Obamacare doesn't work. Obamacare doesn't work. Obamacare doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work when you take away some of the key provisions that make it work. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, some people heard that as him, like, taking ownership of it now, which I don't think is what he meant. I don't think think that's what he meant at all. I think the key there is in the second (laughs) half of that clip where, yeah, yeah, you know, he's been saying that it's a a failure or is failing or whatever this whole time. Um, You know, it's not... It has not been going perfectly. It's had real problems that he didn't cause. And I think, you know, we do a disservice to everyone to to pretend that didn't happen. But also, yeah, Peter's exactly right. He has uh, taken, you know, pretty much every step he could find. Cutting off these subsidies was was really a big one uh, to push it over the precipice that it was not going over on its own. So let's talk about these subsidies. And uh, before we do, play a quick clip of Trump bragging about cutting these cost-sharing reduction payments that insurers get to provide more affordable coverage for low-income Americans. Here he is. In my opinion, what's happening is as we meet, Republicans are meeting with Democrats because of what I did with the CSRs, because I cut off the gravy train. If I didn't cut the CSRs, they wouldn't be meeting. They'd be having lunch and enjoying themselves, all right? (laughs) So, Sam... Explain briefly what CSR payments are, and do you agree that this was a gravy train to insurers? Uh, no, and just another point on that clip, these meetings have been happening since August. Oh. But these didn't just start. Oh. Um, but anyway, to answer your question. Yeah. CSRs, it's sort of complicated, but you, under Obamacare, can get a premium to help, or a subsidy to help pay your premium. Then there's another program for, if you're a particularly low-income Obamacare enrollee, uh, there's a provision in the law that says insurance companies have to lower your out-of-pocket spending. So like co-pays, deductibles, they can't charge you as much as they normally would. They have to do that out of their own pocket. Then the government comes along and writes them a check to say, all right, 
on a monthly basis. Since, you know, since the consumer didn't pay that money, yeah, here, we will subsidize. So it, the money does go to insurance companies, but it is to pay for a benefit that consumers actually receive. So it's like a pass-through. Exactly. Now, there's a technical conversa- uh, question, really, about whether or not Congress appropriated these dollars, and it's, ba- it's based on that that Trump... Uh, is rescinding the payments, and so now there's a congressional effort to actually appropriate these CSR payments. Right. Is that right? Yes. And explain to me, though, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. I I don't. Of why, outside of that appropriation question, which feels like a screw-up um, on the part of the folks who drafted the law, why was it designed like this to begin with? Why w- was it... Uh, I guess, why did they have to provide subsidies to insurers to then give to these to to then price their products in a way for low-income Americans to make the the cost sharing more um, more equitable for them I think uh, and I couldn't swear to this but I think the reason was just to make it simpler on the consumers end right that you mm-hmm. go through healthcare.gov or your state exchange <clears throat> excuse me you select a plan based on your income then you don't have to you know okay your premium is this but you get a subsidy for this much and then after you pay your deductible file a form blah blah, I blah see. you know so you, a just, more you just process. get it okay now your deductible is x and you don't have to worry about what it might be if you were wealthier mm-hmm. right you just yeah I, I think that's the reason i see okay understood so and now that these payments that um, the administration has been making every single month now that they're going away and the president has kicked this over to congress Let's talk about what's happening in Congress with these meetings where they may or may not be eating lunch um, and then how insurers are responding and what that would actually mean for consumers of healthcare coverage. Right. Um, so insurance companies still have to provide the discount to consumers. Yeah. Right. So because they're just sort of forced to eat that cost now, they will respond by raising their premiums. Now, in I think most states uh, across the country, because there's been this uncertainty, Trump kept sort of hinting he might cut off the payments. A lot of insurance companies, when they set their rates, said, we're just going to assume that- just build it right in there. Yeah, we're just going to assume this money goes away. And if it doesn't, if the payments get made, we'll you know send out a rebate later. But um, so, so in most of the country, premiums are going up a lot, partly because insurance companies already said we are just assuming that this is going to be a disaster. So do we know how much that's priced in? I mean, I remember um, a congressional budget offer, the congressional budget office analysis finding that just that uncertainty about whether or not the CSRs would continue is a 20 percent on average premium increase. But do we know how much revoking the CSR payments adds to that boost? I think it's about the same. I think Pennsylvania came out yesterday and said mm-hmm. they were scheduled to have, I think it was an average 7% increase next year, and now it's 30. I see. Okay. They were one of the states that had not assumed this would go away. So that, that gives you, like, that's a direct reaction to what Trump did. Now, you're saying that the um, low-income Americans who qualify for these cost-sharing reductions will continue receiving them because that's under the law. Uh so then it feels like they are they are still protected. The individuals who receive subsidies, the premium subsidies under the Affordable Care Act are also protected because the subsidies increase as the cost of coverage increases. So then you have the people who are impacted directly by premium costs are the folks who are in Obamacare 
but don't receive premium subsidies. Right. Yeah. People. So people who receive the cost sharing reduction, they're OK. Them. Then premiums go up. So if the government is not helping you pay your premium, you're on the hook for that. So it's a lot of middle class families, frankly, who will, <clears throat> you know, who maybe run a small business or are self-employed or freelancers, that kind of thing, who are a little bit too wealthy to get financial help but are buying coverage on their own anyway, their premiums are still going up, you know, 30% in a lot of cases. And that's a lot of money. That's So real. Obamacare is not dead, as <clears throat> as uh, Donald Trump said. It's just no. getting very expensive. Yes, yes. Which I think was the problem with Obamacare all along, like that you don't take the insurance companies out of the mix, but that's just me. All right, now we appear <laughs> to have uh, some breaking news that This Jamie is a Bill Press Show yeah, breaking news update. Donald Trump just tweeting a few <laughs> minutes ago. This is uh, from his Twitter handle at Real Donald Trump. Rep. Tom Marino has informed me that he is withdrawing his name from consideration as drug czar. Tom is a fine man and a great congressman. This, of course, in the wake of the 60 Minutes Washington Post report yeah. on then Congressman Tom Marino, uh, essentially making it easier uh, to not act against big drunk companies. So uh, Tom Marino will not be joining the Trump administration. You know, I, I, the, the CBS report, the 60 Minutes reports, that, that, as you mentioned, that they did with the Washington Post was really damaging uh, to Tom Marino. I mean, it really lays out uh, sort of how bad of a guy he has been in this opioid and Marsha Blackburn. And Marsha Blackburn, yes, Ooh, of course. Who's running for Senate. Running for or Senate Bob in Corker Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's maybe then move to uh, talking about drugs. Uh, most, <laughs> most prominently, Trump's comments yesterday of uh, the government playing a larger role in setting prices for drugs. Now, this was a piece of um, uh, during the campaign that uh, overlapped a bit from what Bernie was saying and what f from some progressives wanted to see. He hasn't actually implemented any of it. In fact, I think he's gone the other way um, while he's been in office. Give us a sense, Sam, of where this issue stands and what the administration has done and what Trump now is suggesting he would do. Uh, yeah, so he, <clears throat> excuse me, he came out yesterday back to his campaign rhetoric, as you said, that Drug companies are getting away with murder. The prices are too high. And he specifically said they're setting prices in other countries and we're not doing it, which is uh, putting a finer point on health care policy than he really ever has <laughs> yeah, before, frankly. A real fine um, point, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it is true that we don't do that. It is also true that, you know, Mike Pence, when he was in the House, would have been a, a leading opponent of that. Uh, Tom Price, when he was HHS secretary, was a leading opponent of that. You know, everyone else... In the Trump administration, the Republican Party has for years fought really hard against the government setting prices. We even have this semantic debate about, well, if you let Medicare negotiate for drug prices, is that the same as setting a drug price? Yeah. And he, Trump went all the way to setting prices. So I think, you know. And that was a piece of his populist agenda uh, right. that, that may have appealed to, to some of his But voters. I, you know. I've been wrong about everything that's happened in politics <laughs> for like a year and a half. Fair. But I would nevertheless say I'd be shocked if Mitch McConnell moves a bill to set drug prices. Now, that what does that mean, like... set drug prices? Who would be setting the prices? Because I'm sure there's some there's proposals to accomplish some of this from, you know, kind of the usual actors. I'm assuming Sanders has some kind of bill and, and some yeah. of the other progressives in Congress. It would be Medicare. Medicare. Be Medicare. So it would come in yeah. and say... 
here's how much we would pay, and then would other private insurers then follow that lead? Yeah, and probably they might pay a little bit more than what Medicare pays, but and and they negotiate now Medicare. Yeah, no, private insurers. Private insurers do. Yeah, do. yeah but Medicare does not. And because then, it is legally prohibited from doing so. so in you Medicare Part the, D, right, in the Bush, is that right? In the yeah, Bush yeah. law, they they specifically outlawed that. Yes. And the, the, the idea was that, of course, drug companies were against it because they would lose a lot of money. Yeah. And I mean, that's where that pharma's argument is, look, if Medicare comes in and says we'd like to have a negotiation, who has all the power there, right? Medicare is the biggest insurance company, especially for prescription drugs in the country, that if they say, well, we'd really like to pay yeah. $7 for this drug, the drugs are going to cost $7. Right. And then they, of course, scream that, oh, it's going to eat up all innovation and it's going to make it much more difficult to fund these blockbuster drugs that are produced right. every so often. That's their that's their case. Right. Um, what is... Um, I was going to ask you a more specific question about this that I'm now actually forgetting about the setting of the prices. But let me then just ask you a more practical question, and that is Trump has talked about this several times now that he's that, he, that he's been president. There's been literally literal zero, as far as I can tell, interest, as you point out, actually, from congressional Republicans to move any of this along in Congress is literally zero appetite. So is this just kind of bluster that again plays to his base or is he maybe interested in, in cutting deal with his friends Chuck and Nancy on this? I mean, who knows? I think I, you know, you've, you've seen, been wrong you've on seen, everything. So yes. carefully, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I get the sense that he believes this, you know, he keeps returning to it yeah. so often. I think it might be a sincere belief that he has, but, you know, this White House has not really been in the driver's seat on any of its policy <laughs> initiatives. I mean, they've set broad things, but, you know, they, he has not gone up to the Hill and said, I want this specific thing and how are we going to get it done and been sort of hands on in the negotiations. You know, they've outsourced a lot of yeah. that to Paul Ryan and McConnell. And so for that reason, I just have a hard time. Who are not this. proponents. No. Of these kinds no. of ideas. Opponents. Opponents. Even. The uh, opposite yeah, yeah, yeah. of a proponent. Pro yes. <laughs> is um is there a score uh for how much this would save both the government in terms of I guess Medicare savings and then the consumer? Uh there is. I forget off the top of my head, but it is a it's lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah. Okay. And so that's when that's where you hear that's where I guess you hear uh, is is this a does Bernie have a bill like this or is he drug importation because that's also a separate piece that Trump is not for the importing of drugs from cheaper Yeah and that's places. trickier and I know Bernie is very much for that a lot of apolitical career staff at the FDA have also been against that for a long time because they are legitimately afraid that you could not that they could not uh guarantee the safety of the uh, supply chain if you I ever, see. So you know I'm not saying that that's not something that could be addressed with funding for the FDA or whatever, but there are sort of legitimate non-political knocks on that, um, whereas the Medicare price negotiating debate really does sort of come down along more traditional political lines. Yeah. Where you have well, let's um, um, uh, talk a bit about, we talked about, it, you know, in terms of like Trump care, yeah, Obamacare is yeah. dead and we're now living in the world of Trump care. Part of that is the cost sharing reductions that he's now taken away and how 
that's going to destabilize the markets and what it means for uh, open enrollment as that moves along what November 1st it opens. Yep. Is that right? Yep. But the other piece are uh, several executive orders that he signed earlier uh, in the week, uh, last week, that try to kind of destabilize the market even more, uh, allowing small businesses to form these association health care plans that have less regulation um, than the Obamacare policies, and then also permitting individuals to enroll in these temporary policies for 364 days as opposed to three months and what that does to the market. Talk broadly about those actions um, and what the, the consequences of them uh, are. So those are the two big pieces that have gotten the most attention and uh, they're called association health plans have, have really sort of been the, the marquee here. Um, that's where a group of sort of similarly situated individuals or small businesses, let's just say for the purpose of argument, small mm -hmm. businesses like I run a bakery, you run a bakery, you run a bakery? Oh, We're going to... That's news. Yeah. I didn't know that. Baker's Bakery. Didn't bring anything for you? <laughs> oh, that's right. There you go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to band together and get a better deal on healthcare because there's more of us when we do that. That's gotten a lot of the attention. I actually think that's a mistake. I think the bigger deal here is these short-term plans that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Because those association health plans, you know, it'll depend how the rules are written, but there are still rules about what they have to cover, how they have to structure their benefits. You know, I would expect to see the Trump administration try to weaken some of those rules, but some of them are statutory and they're there. But these short-term plans don't have to cover hardly anything. Yeah, these are these. They don't have to cover pre-existing conditions. They're super cheap, but that's because they, they offer don't cover almost them. no coverage. Yeah. And I've talked to some folks in the insurance industry, and their concern is someone's going to go on healthcare.gov. They're going to see the cheapest, you know, Obamacare plan, right, that covers essential health benefits and doesn't discriminate based on pre-existing conditions, and then see this short-term plan next to it, because mm. we don't know exactly how this is going to work, that costs next to nothing, and say, well, this is all, and it's right, like, like I'm in here, I'm in yeah. the system, and just sort of assume that these consumer protections apply when they very much do not. So I think that has real potential to not just... You know, and then you are, you know, the people who are who would be doing that are healthy individuals in the Obamacare exchanges, right? Yeah. It's like Obamacare is a small business exchange. There is one. It's not working great. So yeah. some small business people go outside that exchange. You know, there's sort of less to lose there than uh -huh. there is in the individual. Now these um, uh, these temporary plans. What's the purpose behind them? Because Obama, the Obama regulation that he's now changing allowed individuals to only stay in those plans for three months, right? Right. And they were intended, I mean, short-term plans is a, a good name for them. They were intended sort of as a bridge, right? Like, let's say you quit your job and you're going to start your own business, but you're not ready to open your doors, you know, the day after you quit your job, right? So you don't have a employees yet you don't have you're not thinking about health insurance yet yeah in the business you're going to start but you've lost what you had through the job you quit it was intended as a bridge now it's now that bridge can last a year days. Right. yeah all right sam baker healthcare editor axios axios axios.com i'm the Volsky. i can't pronounce anything uh thanks for listening for watching bye-bye thanks neil This is The Bill Press Show.